Uh, Well, this morning we are going to be wrapping up a mini-series that we had about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, For the last several weeks, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer phrase phrase by phrase to see what uh, each part tells us, how we should be praying, and what it tells us about God. Well, as we conclude our series on the Lord's Prayer this morning, we're not going to be going through the content of the Lord's Prayer. No, we're going to be seeing what our attitude should be regarding prayer. Uh, If you think about it, you can't really separate one's actions from one's attitudes. The the two go hand in hand together. If you think of a professional athlete that you admire, maybe somebody who's faster than everybody else or stronger than everybody else, well, you really admire that person's actions. But if you find out that that person is actually a jerk in real life, maybe they're always getting in fights with their teammates, they're always having problems with their coaches, and they're not a loyal and faithful husband, well, we don't admire them as much as an athlete, Because your attitude matters just as much as your actions. And in our passage this morning that was just read for us, Jesus is telling us what type of attitude we should have when we approach our Father in heaven. And I believe Jesus is telling us that we should have an attitude of confidence. Uh, Confidence is something that our culture values a lot. Uh, If you go into any bookshop or you go into any library, you will see a whole plethora of books about how you can be more confident. Uh, I think there's several reasons why there's so much literature about confidence. Uh, One is that confidence is a very important asset to have. If you are a confident person, you're probably going to be more successful in life. But I think there's another reason why we have so much literature about how to have confidence. And that's because our confidence is like a roller coaster. Sometimes we have high confidence, but the next day maybe our confidence bottoms out. Maybe you take a test, and you do really well on it, you end up getting 100% on that test. Well, your confidence would be quite high. But you take a test a week later, and you do terrible, and your confidence is now in a trough. Or maybe you go on a first date, and you meet this person, you think, oh, that was the best date, I know that this is the one, we're going to have long-term plans, your confidence is an all-time high, but then you don't get a phone call back for a second date, and your confidence is in the toilet. And this happens with our careers too, right? You know, one week you get the big promotion, everybody's jealous, they're all talking about you saying, oh, I wish I could be that person. But then at the end of the first quarter, your numbers are terrible, and guess what? Everybody's talking about you, but they're not envious, they are talking bad about you. And your confidence is at an all-time low. Well, our confidence is like a roller coaster, full of ups and full of downs, not just in our academic pursuits and not just in our professional careers. The confidence roller coaster happens in our prayer life as well. And Jesus is telling us to have confidence. So we're going to see what this passage says about why we should have confidence. But before we do that, we need to look at a question. And the first question that we have to look at is why do we lose confidence in our prayer lives? Well, there's many different ways we can tackle this question, but I'm going to look at it in four parts. Uh, The first way that we uh, lose confidence or have an unconfident prayer life is because we are unskilled in prayer. And if you remember, the way that this chapter opens, one of Jesus' disciples comes to him and says, Lord, please teach us how to pray. So Jesus' disciples realized they didn't have the necessary skills to pray, and they needed to be taught. Now, if we compare ourselves to the disciples, these were the ones who were sitting at Jesus' feet. They probably had two or three meals a day with Jesus, and they would travel all over the region with Jesus And they still needed to be taught. They still needed the skills to pray. And whenever we don't have the skills, we have unconfident prayer lives. 
Maybe you can think back to a time whenever you were asked to pray, maybe at a meal or in a small group, and your heart dropped. You thought, pray in front of people? What are they going to think? It was a flashback to your high school Spanish lesson whenever the teacher asked you a question in Spanish, and poof, your mind went completely blank. How am I supposed to answer this question? I don't remember any vocabulary. Well, this happens to us in our prayer life. It's kind of like learning a second language. You have to practice. You have to train or else you're never going to be confident in your prayer life. But I know this one doesn't apply to RBC, no, because you've been listening to the sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, so you are properly trained and you have the skills. But maybe this next point is how some of you feel. Maybe you start out, you want to, to, to have a strong prayer life, but at the end of the day, you're pretty undetermined to bring this about. Some say that Jesus is actually combating his disciples' laziness, Uh, We see this in the garden. What do the disciples do? Well, they're not determined, and they end up falling asleep. Uh, Maybe during this sermon series, you decided, you know what? I'm going to go home, and I'm going to pray every day. For the rest of my life, I'm going to set an alarm 20 minutes early. I'm going to get up, and I'm going to pray. But what happens on Monday morning when that alarm goes off? Oh, you start to make all sorts of excuses. Well, 20 minutes is kind of a long time. Let me hit the snooze button once. Ten minutes is uh, still better than what I was doing. But then after the snooze alarm goes off, you think, well, you know, I can just pray on the way to work. So, you know, I don't have to to get up. So you hit the snooze button again and you decide you're going to pray on the way to work. Well, when you get in the car, you begin to pray as you're driving down the road. And about the time you get to the uh, daily bread, you notice a sign on the highway. And it is the Powerball jackpot sign. You realize that it is $700 million and you think, wow. I wouldn't need daily bread if I had that. I could have daily T-bone steaks. And for the rest of the day, you were thinking about what your life could be like if God would only give you the winning ticket. So sometimes we are unconfident in our prayer lives because we are undetermined. And this is probably the one that I personally identify with the most. Uh, I sometimes hit my snooze button, but if you ask my wife, she would say that I always hit the snooze button. So this is the one that I probably personally identify with. But the next one is the one that I am the most sympathetic to. And we've all experienced unanswered prayers. We've asked for something over and over again, but we have not received. And we lose confidence. And we even get confused when we look at a passage like the one before us. Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And you think, What's going on here? I've asked, I've sought, and I've knocked. I still don't have. And you begin to lose confidence with these unanswered prayers. Now, on the one hand, I'm very sympathetic to people who struggle with this. Uh, On the other hand, I am not. If you're the person who prayed for the winning lottery ticket of the the, uh, Powerball jackpot, I am not sympathetic to you at all. And scripture actually rebukes those kind of prayers. It says you don't have whenever you ask because you're asking because you want to spend it on your own fleshly desires. You don't really want to glorify God. You don't want to help your neighbor. You want to benefit yourself. And God and his grace does not give us those things because it would lead us further away from him. Now, I'm sympathetic to the people who struggle with this whenever they're praying a good prayer, when they're praying for healing of maybe their sibling or their parent or even their child, and they don't find the answer that they're looking for. Well, as we'll see by the end of our talk this morning, the scripture does not offer a rebuke to these people. No, scripture offers comfort to people who experience unanswered prayers. 
And the last point is some people have unconfident prayer lives because they are unconvinced of the need of prayer to begin with. Maybe they think, oh, too many unanswered prayers. You know, I don't think this is going to work. But there's actually a philosophical problem with prayer. We believe that God knows all things. He knows what you're going to ask for before you ask for it. So you struggle. What's the point? I don't think I really need prayer because God is already all-knowing. He knows what I need, so why do I need to pray? And I think something like that is what is taking place in our texts. I think there's a philosophical problem that us living in 2021 might not catch on to. You see, in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has told his disciples to talk to God as a father. Now, this would have been scandalous. This would have been mind-blowing for the disciples. How can you talk about the all-knowing, all-perfect life within himself, the pure deity, how can you call him father whenever we are corrupt, whenever we sin, whenever we are subject to decay? We're going to die and we're going to rot. So how can we call this God our Father? I think that is one of the main dilemmas that the disciples would have been wrestling with. And it's a dilemma that we don't really encounter today because we have a false gospel that is permeating many of the churches. Uh, it's been around for some 200 years. It originated from, uh, from the continent of Europe. And this view of, uh, of uh, this false uh, gospel, rather, it teaches that we are all already children of God, that God is the father of all people, and there's no point of having things like miracles. There's no point of Jesus going to the cross and dying. No, no, we don't need that. The gospel that Jesus brought is this right here, just him telling us that God is actually our father. But this would not have even registered to the disciples because they grew up hearing all the stories of people like Moses. Moses went up and he talked to God on a mountain. And how did the people respond when they saw Moses talking on the mountain to God? Well, the mountain was covered in fire and the people were terrified. Even when Moses came down the mountain from talking to the people, the people were scared of Moses because he was shining with the brightness of the ever-living Father himself. So the disciples would have realized, how do we, how do we reconcile this terrifying, holy, all-powerful being with our sinful corruption? They would have also thought of stories like Elijah. Whenever Elijah encountered God, there was a great storm. There was winds and earthquakes, and what does Elijah do? He takes his coat and he wraps it around his head so he cannot see. So how do we reconcile these two? Well, the false gospel just will not do justice to it. But I think the disciples are right here and they are struggling. They're unconvinced. They don't understand how can we call this God our father whenever our ancestors were terrified of this God. Well, these are four reasons that we experience unconfident prayer lives. And what do all four of these reasons have in common? They all begin with a U. That is right. I, I uh, wasn't looking for anything so sophisticated, but I blew the dust off of my thesaurus, and I found four words that begin with U. Five if you count unconfident. Because if you start with a U focus to prayer, you're never going to get anywhere. Our foundation for our prayer is Christ, not you. That is the false gospel, saying, oh, God is already your father. We're all uh, connected. We're all brothers and sisters. The reason that is sloppy theology is because God is the creator, and he has one son, Jesus Christ. 
That's it. Whenever I was a child, I created a bookmark for my mom. I think I was five years old, and I believe I did it in Sunday school as a kid. Uh, It was a very cute bookmark for Mother's Day. It had a picture of a mom, and this mom was wearing all these different hats. She had a nurse's hat, because the mom is the one who fixes boo-boos. She had a chef's hat, because mom is the one who fixes meals. She had the, you know, accountant's uh, ring bands on, because she's the one who pays the bills, and just all these different things in this picture. So I painted this bookmark for my mom. Now, my mom loves this bookmark. I remember one time we accidentally threw it away. It fell out of a book into the rubbish bin whenever I was, like, 19 years old. When my mom couldn't find this bookmark, she goes into the dumpster and she digs through the trash to find the bookmark. The only time I've ever seen my mom do anything like that, I'm sure she still has it now 30 years after I created it. But now I have a child. And my mom loves the child far more than she loves my creation. I'm not the father of that bookmark. I'm the creator of that bookmark. So just because God created you, it doesn't mean you are his child. He has one child Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ opens the door for our adoption into his family. Jesus is the only natural son, and we can become adopted sons and daughters. And it is Christ who is our confidence and our hope in our prayer life. So now let's take a look at our second question How can we pray confidently with Christ? Well, this passage gives us three ways or three reasons that we ought to pray. With confidence. And we are going to attack this passage the same way that we would attack an Oreo cookie. What is the best way to eat an Oreo cookie? You start right with the cream. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump right in the middle. And I even went through the trouble of putting together an Oreo cookie. Uh, If you guys look underneath your chairs, you should find some Oreo cookies. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have any. I didn't go that far, but uh, I thought about it. Anyway, so we're jumping right in the middle of the passage, right into the cream, verses 9 and 10. If you want to have a confident prayer life with Christ, you must seek the sweet covenant. Jesus says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. Now, some commentators say that Jesus isn't actually offering a, a specific promise here. He's just speaking in hyperbolic language. He's, he's using an exaggeration to make a point. And these same commentators would flip a few chapters uh, forward where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, the, the lazy, undetermined disciples have already fallen asleep. And Jesus is there praying. And he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. Meaning, don't send me to the cross if there's any other way let that be the way. Don't, don't make me drink this cup of wrath. Uh, we see Jesus making that request to the Father, but it was not given to him. We say that Jesus was knocking on that door, but it was not open. So those commentators read back into this passage, and they say, well, Jesus is just using an exaggeration to make a point. Well, I, I think there's a, that's a, uh, a decent argument, but that is not the view of this passage that I take. I believe that this is a promise uh, from Jesus himself. I believe he is taking an oath. He uses very strong language when he says, I tell you. He's saying this is the way that it is. This is how prayer works. This is the language of a covenant. He is taking an oath that if you ask God, not according to your own will, but according to his covenantal promises, he's going to give you what you ask for. So the way that you could read this is ask God according to his covenantal promises and it will be given to you. 
Seek those covenantal blessings that have been promised from on high, and you will receive. Knock upon the door of his good covenant, and it will be open unto you. This type of uh, way of thinking about prayer is not new. Uh, The Puritans used to talk about this. They say if you really want to have a a great prayer life, you really want to see the gates of heaven open unto you, you look through the Bible, you find his covenant promises, and you pray according to those. So, what does that look like? Well, you find something in the Bible that God has bound himself to, or you find something in the Bible that tells you about God's character, and you pray with that as your reason for your petition. Uh, There is a prayer that I have been actively praying for the last few months, and I commend it to all of you. I know many of you have kids, or you have loved ones and nephews and nieces. In Exodus 34, verses like 6, 7, 8, 9, in there, God reveals his character— He reveals his name. They're not inseparable. And in God's name, in his character, he says, I am a God who extends his love to the thousandth generation. That is how much God loves his people. He just doesn't love one person. He loves their offspring to the thousandth generation. So I use that truth about God, that sweet covenant blessing or promise, and I say, God, I want you to bless my child. I want you to extend your covenantal, faithful love to my son, not because I've done anything good, not because he's good, but because that's who you are. You're a God who extends the covenantal blessing, the steadfast love of the Lord, to the thousandth generation. I will continue to pray that prayer by God's grace whenever my son becomes a youth, a teenager, and rebels against me and his mother. I will pray that whenever my son goes to college and rejects everything that I have taught. I will pray that even if my son goes to prison for some heinous crime. Why? Because God's character is unchanging, and I believe that is the sweet covenant promise we can rest upon as parents. And I commend it to you. But you might be thinking, God, or you might be thinking, John, not God. You might be thinking, John, that is a little bit extreme now. Are you sure that we can pray with such boldness? It seems a little bit improper. Well, I invite you to explore the sweetness of the first cookie on top of our Oreo. Let's take a look at the first uh, parable that is given to us in verses 5 to 8. I believe this parable is telling us that if you want to have a confident prayer life, you need to ask shamelessly for your requests. In this parable, we have two neighbors. Uh, The first neighbor uh, is at home, he's probably asleep, and he has a guest. Some, one of his relatives perhaps who's been traveling, just comes and shows up unexpectedly. Now, if that were to happen to us, we might be quite upset. Why didn't you call? Why didn't you text? Why didn't you tweet or Snapchat or something else? Why did you just show up? Well, of course, they didn't have all of those technologies. But you might be thinking, why didn't you come at lunchtime? Why didn't you come at dinnertime? Why did you come now in the middle of the night? Well, they didn't have vans with air conditioning. They didn't have public transportation. They had to ride on donkeys and camels and walk. So if you were going to travel in the ancient world, you probably waited until the cool of the day, and they began traveling whenever the sun went down, and they just make it to this first neighbor's house at midnight. Now, this neighbor, or this friend, rather, this first neighbor, he had an obligation to be a good host. He had to give them some type of hospitality, but he is caught with nothing to give them. He has no leftovers He is unprepared. He is about to face the shame of being a bad host. So what does this neighbor do? Well, he goes and he visits the second neighbor. 
He goes and knocks on this neighbor's door, and this neighbor is also asleep. Uh, the, the Bible says that he is there with all of his family. They're all piled into one bed, which, again, seems weird to us, but that was quite normal for that period of time. Uh, they're, they're all piled in bed, and then he hears this knock on the door. Oh, he recognizes his voice. It's that audacious neighbor coming to ask for a favor again. What do you want? You want three loaves of bread? You want me to get up? You know how long it took me to get these kids to fall asleep? And now you want me to get up? You want me to open the door? I was supposed to buy WD-40 to fix the creak in the door, but I didn't buy WD-40. I ran out of time, so I'm going to open the door. My wife's going to be upset because the creak in the door wakes everybody up. The kids are going to be awake. They're going to be crying. They're going to be fussy the next day. And I have a very important meeting to go to. You want me to get out of bed and do this? Well, of course, the neighbor is going to get up and answer the first neighbor's request. He doesn't want the shame to be placed upon him of being a bad host and of being a bad neighbor. One commentator says that if that second neighbor doesn't get up and give the first neighbor bread, he's going to have a bigger problem on his hands than his kids being woken up. He's going to have the entire village woken up saying, why are you being a bad host? You're bringing shame upon the entire village. So what is the point of all of this? Why does Jesus give this parable? Well, Jesus actually commends the first neighbor for being so shameless, for being bold, for being audacious. Uh, Some commentators and even some translations say that this neighbor, the first neighbor, was being persistent. But it's actually a bad translation of the word and a a bad understanding of the text. Uh, This neighbor only asks once. He's not exactly being persistent. There's a a parable in chapter 18 where a woman continually asks and she's commended for being persistent. But this first neighbor asked once. And why is he commended? What are we supposed to copy from him? We're supposed to copy his shamelessness, his boldness, his audacity to go and ask according to a covenantal promise. This neighbor had an obligation to be a good host. So yeah, he even asked at midnight. He even woke up the entire family, and that is how we are supposed to pray. Now, when we think of the second neighbor, that is supposed to remind us of God. But God is not a grump like this second neighbor. No, God is far greater than the second neighbor. But what Jesus is telling us to do is he's saying, if you want to have confidence in your prayer life, you need to seek that sweet covenant, and you need to go and you need to ask shamelessly to God in heaven. And he will gladly give you what he has promised to you. So you want to have a confident prayer life with Christ, seek the sweet covenant, ask shamelessly, and now we need to enjoy our final chocolate cookie of the Oreo. If you want to have a confident prayer life, you must knock for the best. Uh, Verses 11 through 13, uh, we see another parable where Jesus is comparing earthly fathers with our heavenly father. Uh, He is not exactly teaching about original sin or the doctrine of total depravity of humanity. He he might uh, believe those things, but here all he's doing is saying that you people are evil. Uh, He's just making a general assumption. Uh, So Jesus is calling uh, fathers evil here, which is another thing that is quite countercultural to our society. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was reading through some of the curriculum guidelines for this institution in North America that maps curriculum, uh, because I'm a little bit of a nerd like that. And one of the things that this curriculum guide is saying and trying to instill in our children all across America is that you are basically good. 
You are totally normal. You are perfect as you are. Your problem is you have to figure out how to relate to your whole society, which is also made up of good people. So you are uniquely good, and you have to figure out how to cooperate with this good society. Well, I think that flies right in the face of Jesus' assumption here. He says, no, even you fathers who give good gifts, like a, a father who takes care of his child, who, who gives them bread to eat, who gives them eggs in the morning and fish at night, we might say that that is a good father, but here Jesus is saying, nope, that's just an evil father who somehow manages to give good gifts. So this evil person gives something good. Jesus invites us to imagine how much a good father an eternal father, what type of good gift would he be giving us? He's going to give us something far greater than what we're simply asking for. And what does this passage tell us to ask for? Well, it's something far better than a promotion at work or the winning lottery ticket when the Powerball reaches a billion dollars. He's inviting us to ask for the Holy Spirit, the very nature of God coming to us through prayer. Now, I imagine that this probably opens more questions in your mind. What does this mean to ask of the Holy Spirit? In fact, you might be asking, what is the Holy Spirit to begin with? Well, the Christian religion affirms a triune God, one being, one God, and that essence exists in three persons. Well, there are plenty of terrible analogies uh, floating around out there to try to explain the Trinity. Uh, I've heard it explained as an egg, which falls short. The, the egg analogy says that God is composed of parts. Uh, God is not made of parts, so you could you know, separate the egg, the yolk, and the, the shell, and you have three different things that are no longer an egg. God is not made like a bicycle wheel where you put parts together. So the egg analogy we must cast aside. I've also heard it explained like the Trinity is like water, that you can have ice, you can have liquid, and you can have air. But that is a heresy that was condemned by the church about 1,600 years ago because that teaches that God can change, that he takes on different forms uh, called modalism, and that also should be rejected. Well, no analogy is going to be perfect, right? And we can barely understand how this works together. But one analogy that I have found to be exceptionally helpful comes from the help of Gregory. And I have a picture of Gregory. Would you guys like to see a picture of Gregory as we continue? Oh, great, perfect. So here is a picture of Gregory. Now, for those who don't, don't know why we're snickering, uh, I have a son named Gregory, who's uh, three months old. Uh, and Gregory, my son, is named after uh, Gregory in church history. But not this one. This one is Gregory of Nyssa, and he was one of the uh, church fathers who helped formulate the language that the greater church adopted about the Trinity, and uh, particularly uh, the Holy Spirit. And he likes to think of the Trinity in a form of fire on three candles. He says, imagine that you have one candle, and on that one candle you have a flame. You have one fire, and that fire represents God the Father. All of his attributes are there. He is uh, pure light. He is eternal. He is life within himself. He is love. He is kindness. He is just. All of his attributes are found in that one flame. And if you take that candle and you put it on a second candle, you would have the exact same flame on the second candle as you had on the first. All of the same properties would have transferred. You would have another flame that is eternal that is loving, that is pure, that has life within himself. And that represents the second person of the Trinity, the Logos or the Son of God. 
And if you were to take those two candles and then you were to light a third candle, well, that third candle would have the exact same attributes, the exact same essence as the first and the second. And we refer to that third fire as the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is a pretty helpful way for us to think about the Trinity and to think about the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't answer that big question that I raised earlier. How do we get this holy flame, this holy God that is complete life in himself, how do we get him to come live inside of us, that which is broken, that which is subject to death and decay? For that question, we must focus upon the second person of the Trinity. You see, the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, he was eternal in his divine essence. But some 2,000 years ago, that divine fire came down to earth and he united with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. The only way we could be united to God, the only way we could call God Father, is if God first comes down to us. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. He came down and he united the divine nature with the human nature. Now, I also raised a problem that hopefully you were astute enough to catch. I said that whenever Jesus was in the garden, he prayed and he asked for something and he didn't receive it. Now, why didn't he receive it? Was he praying outside of God's covenant promises? Well, perhaps. But I think he was alluding to a larger covenant, a greater purpose that was behind the scenes. You see, the reason that the Logos, or the Son of God, became a human being was so that he could take the broken human being, so that he could take humanity that had sinned and was subject to decay, and so that he could redeem it, so that he could form it and transform it into the very image of God. So whenever Jesus Christ was in the garden, he didn't end his prayer with, let this cup pass from me. He added a line. He said, not my will, but your will be done. What is taking place there? Well, you see, Jesus had a human will. And that human will had to be perfectly submitted to the divine will of God the Father of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So in the garden, the human will of Jesus Christ was being formed and it was being transformed into the image of God. The flesh was being made brand new. And that is the flesh that gave us life. That is the flesh that went to the cross and died for our sins, and came back to life. And that is the flesh that brings us life. You see, asking for things in prayer is normal. That's part of the prayer process. But that is not the only purpose. We say prayer is more formative than anything else in our lives. As we pray, we become more like Christ. If you want to have a confident Prayer life in Christ. Yes, you need to seek his covenant promises. Yes, you need to ask shamelessly and boldly. You need to knock for that which is best. But if you really want to have that confidence with Christ in your prayer life, you have to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus Christ. You have to pray the same words that he prayed. Not my will, but your will be done. Whenever you pray like that, I believe that this passage will come to life for you. If you ask God to give you the Holy Spirit to change your will to the will of Jesus Christ, I believe you will find that your answer will be quite positive. So church, let us pray together. 
Father, we thank you for all of your divine blessings. We thank you for all of your covenant promises. I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to the truths of your word, and may you change us. May we pray according to those blessings, according to those promises, not according to our own fleshly desires. Uh, We thank you for the true gospel, the one that says that we can become sons and daughters through the work of Jesus Christ. I pray for all of us that we would knock upon the door of Jesus Christ and that we would have the gates of heaven flung open to us through the power of your spirit. May you transform us by the reading and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.